Hey Jim, how are you doing today? Hey, pretty good Ralph. How about you? I'm doing well. Although, I'm kind of been puzzling over something for the last week or so. Have you been puzzling till your puzzler is sore? Yes, I have. Kind of like the Lorax or... Something. Yeah. No. Who was it? The Grinch. The Grinch, Okay, yeah. yeah. Well, you're looking a little Grinchy today yourself, Ralph. <laughs> oh. Well, I don't mean to be. <laughs> but my puzzle, Jim, has been this. Um, puzzle me. Puzzle me, Ralph. Yes. Uh, you know, um, I've been reading recently a number of things that talk about the DSM in its current incarnation. And one of the things that I'm puzzled about for practicing psychologists like you who've been doing this stuff for a lot of years now, uh, why do you need a diagnostic and statistical manual? Okay, well, that's a good question, Ralph. And there are some psychologists that would say, yeah, you really don't need one. And remember, you know, the clinical psychologists are operating within a, an arena that is at least has sort of been carved out of psychiatry. And so, you know, we, we have the uh, uh, question of, you know, what is mental illness? And then, you know, how do you, how do you deal with it? And that's what the um, DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, um, set out to, uh, to, to do. Okay, um, now when you say it carved out of psychiatry, uh, do you mean that the psychiatrists came first? Yeah, that's essentially it. And the psychiatrists came out of a, a medical model, okay. and a medical model uh, is based upon what? Disease, right? Right. And so the uh, uh, initial... Uh, impetus for the DSM was to try and identify the diseases of mental health or mental illnesses, if you would. Okay, so um, now I know that psychiatry started uh, basically with Freud and Meyer, and both of them said uh, early experience in childhood sort of sets the tone, if you will, for mental health in adulthood. Yeah, actually you can go back 50 years before Freud to a guy named Kraplan and uh, uh, he was working in uh, uh, institutions uh, in Europe and uh, there was a, a manual that was uh, uh, written at that time and it was called, oh, let me think of it. It was called the Statistical Manual for Use in Institutions for the Insane. That was what it was called. It really didn't catch on because there's more to uh, emotional disturbance than you know, locking people up in an insane asylum. Okay. So, but, so it did uh, uh, really, I think, get kind of a start through, through Freud. Um, but when I was at Michigan State taking... Uh, introductory psychology courses, like an abnormal psych course, um, a lot of my professors said that basically the DSM um, gave us three classifications, maybe four. Uh, one was neurosis, which was an anxiety-based uh, emotional disturbance. One was psychosis, okay. which was uh, out of touch with reality. 
and the other was um, uh, organic brain damage. Okay. And then uh, thrown in with this, and not at that time considered an emotional disturbance, were character disorders and then mental retardation. So, uh, yeah, we see a lot of uh, emotional illnesses having their, their start in childhood, but a lot of them um, will perhaps be uh, later on. Um, okay, so that kind of confounded the uh, theoretical base of psychiatry. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, psychiatry really didn't have a, uh, a research or a, a philosophical uh, basis. Psychiatrists were looked down upon by the rest of their per profession. You know, they okay, were seen so, as the... the so MDs uh, who treated, quote, physical illness, kind of said, you psychiatrists, although you've got an MD, uh, what you're doing is not real doctoring. That's exactly it. And so part of the impetus then for the DSM, for the establishment of some sort of a, um, a manual for the diagnosis of uh, emotional disturbance, was to justify the fact that psychiatry was doing a, a real service. To, uh, to the medical profession. So there are three real reasons why psychiatry and psychology um, uh, would use the DSM. And one is that it helps us to communicate. Okay. You know, if I um, uh, am talking to another psychologist about someone who has an acute anxiety disorder, for the most part, we would be able to understand each other. So okay. just that... Common vocabulary. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons. Another reason is that hopefully if you had a common vocabulary for the illness, you might have some sort of a uh, uh, treatment schema in mind. So that okay. so the, the diagnosis leads to a treatment. Um, now, in heart disease, I suppose, you know, if someone has a bad heart, you know, there are several things that you might do, and okay. among them perhaps uh, uh, prescribe medication to lower blood pressure, I mean, right, so that right. the diagnosis leads to some sort of a treatment. Um, I don't know, I, heart disease is not my specialty, but there are probably some other things. That, yeah, that, yeah. Uh, now, one of the things then, Jim, is to use a 50 cent term and for the benefit of our listeners, I'll explain it in a moment. But what you're really talking about is criteria for a differential diagnosis. Yeah, yeah. And differential diagnosis means that there are a number of things in, uh, in a list of common symptoms that I can say uh, he or she has this, that, the other thing, uh, but not this and not that. And that helps me to differentiate between a very serious anxiety disorder and a relatively mild anxiety disorder. Yeah, I suppose that would be a, a good way of thinking about it. Um, the third reason for uh, the DSM uh, has to do with money. Okay, money is always important. Well, okay. If you are going to, quotes, treat uh, a uh, someone for some sort of an illness, uh, 
are you going to bill them entirely, or are you going to build bill uh, an insurance company? Well, nowadays it's an insurance company that picks yeah. up the tab on a lot of uh, uh, illnesses. Now, I don't think they're going to to uh, uh, balk uh, at picking up the tab for uh, open heart surgery, although they might balk at it anyway. Yeah, a fairly expensive operation, but if um, psychiatry couldn't justify itself as providing medical uh, attention, then they couldn't be just. They couldn't justify their uh, billing of an insurance uh, for an insurance uh, okay. policy. Now that leads me back to another thing that I read about that um, kind of confused me. Um, in uh, shortly after World War II, uh, the World Health Organization uh, that we've heard so much about lately in terms of COVID uh, issued an international classification of disease called ICD-6. Yeah. Okay, so that's the money maker. Right. That's that's exactly it. So that uh, a psychiatrist, or in some cases psychologists as well, have to come up with a uh, ICD um, diagnosis for insurance purposes. And the two of them are very similar. There's a, a great overlap between the DSM, which is from the American Psychiatric Association, and the ICD, which is from the World Health Organization. Okay. Now, it started out with relatively few uh, mental illnesses uh, listed in the uh, ICD. But it's kind of interesting that the DSM started out with relatively few um, uh, diagnoses as well, and it's expanded now over the years. Yeah, and uh, you know, back in the day uh, when uh, the first uh, institutional, if you will, uh, set of categories were done in 1918, basically you had a number of uh, neuroses and a number of psychoses, and for the the benefit of our listeners, and maybe in a kind of humorous way, it's been said that uh, neurotics build castles in the air and psychotics live in them. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, a, a neurotic is going to be somebody who has a rich fantasy life, for example, but the psychotic can't tell the fantasies from reality. Okay, yeah. And so we had a handful then, uh, somewhere around 60, uh, identifiable uh, emotional disturbances. And they were pretty much that. They were uh, disturbances of maladjustment. Okay. Uh, the, the idea is that you were either uh, violating social norms, that is, you, you looked or acted in a way that wasn't kind of deemed socially appropriate, or you had um, some internal feelings of discomfort. You know, you, we weren't comfortable with the way you were uh, either behaving or you weren't comfortable about the feelings that you had with, with your behavior. And now over the years, this has um, expanded you know, markedly so that not only do we have um, uh, cases or instances where people are violating social norms but, or cases where people are feeling um, 
uh, in some way disturbed about their behavior to actually the point where pretty much normal behavior, if carried out in an exaggerated way, uh, could be classified as a, a disturbance. I'll give you an example. Uh, do you know anybody who's shy, Ralph? I do. Okay. Yes. Now, sh some people are shy, right? Yes. Okay. But we now have a term that's called social anxiety. Now, social anxiety is shyness, but now it's being treated with SSIRs, and and you know it's classified as an emotional disturbance. Okay. Um, so, in other words, if uh, if I was the kind of young boy, let's say, who when a visitor came to the house, I hid behind my mother's skirts and wouldn't talk. So I'm shy. Mm -hmm. uh, now, all the way through public school and high school, uh, I never speak up in class. I never volunteer to do a presentation. I hate public speaking, etc., uh, etc., I'm still shy, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, but if I get out and I uh, get a job as a salesman and I discover that I have trouble doing the job because I can't go to my clients and talk to them. Okay. This would be uh, a behavior that now is interfering with your life, right? Okay. And that's where the justification would be to... Um, you know, see a psychologist, perhaps, or a psychiatrist. Psychiatrists would prescribe, perhaps, medication of some kind. A psychologist might use a cognitive behavioral approach to help you um, deal with your anxiety and to help uh, develop new presentation skills. Okay. Okay. Whereas the psychiatrist might just use, you know, some kind of medication to help with the anxiety. But in in either case. What we've done is we've taken something that is um, uh, kind of a normal behavior, you know, the shyness of the individual, and we have um, uh, medicalized it okay. and in some ways perhaps even stigmatized it. And that's one of the things that we'll be talking about in this uh, uh, series, Ralph, and that is the uh, stigma, stigmification, is that a word? I th Stig yeah, stigmatization, maybe. Stigmatization of uh, uh, normal behavior uh, by classifying it as, uh, uh, in some way, you know, abnormal or a, you know... A problem. A, a mental illness, yeah. And uh, that's... Some of the... Uh, I mentioned that some psychologists and some psychiatrists would not subscribe to the notion of a DSM because uh, a psychiatrist like Thomas Sass says that uh, mental illness is a myth. And he wrote a book called The Myth of Mental Illness. And he said it's simply a way that society has of attempting to control its deviant individuals. Well, I'm not sure that too many people are going to subscribe to what Saz says today, but um, in the past, oh, the Soviet Union, for example, has taken its uh, 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 political prisoners and deem them to be mentally ill and uh, uh, rather than assassinating them like they're doing now, it would put them into uh, um, camps uh, in Siberia or insane asylums or yeah. Yeah. Now, 
Let me give you a hypothetical example, Jim. Okay. Suppose we have uh, a male who uh, comes from a relatively affluent family. Mm-hmm. Uh, his parents are now dead. He's been terribly shy all his life. Uh, he's got, uh, from his uh, income from his family, he's got $72,000 a year. He works out that he needs uh, about $5,000 a month to live in a house, uh, eat, drive a car, do all the things that he wants to do, needs to do. Okay, that's $60,000, all right. So he's got $12,000 or $1,000 a month, and he spends every day at home doing internet gambling. Now he gambles until he runs out of his $1,000 for that month. Okay. If he wins, he puts half of the money in a savings account. Okay. If he loses, he quits. Okay. No, he's not hurting anything. He's behaving in a way that 90% of the population wouldn't. Okay. But he's got now, let's say next month, he's won uh, $500. He puts half of it away. The next month, he's got not $1,000, but $1,250. Okay. He gambles until that's gone. Okay. If he wins anything, he puts half of it away. Okay. So he's he's not hurting himself. Mm-hmm. He's not hurting other people. Okay. He admits he's addicted. Okay. So what do we do with him? Okay. You don't do anything with him. I mean, that's uh, if he's uh, not hurting himself, not hurting other people. Hey, that's fine. Let's do it a little bit differently, though. You've got this person who's got. Uh, $60,000 to live on, $12,000 to um, uh, gamble with, and uh, in case of uh, uh, the second person, uh, the individual doesn't stop after losing the $1,000. The individual says, okay, I'm going to recoup this money, I'm going to take next month's $1,000, and I'm going to uh, you know, win big on, online. Whoops, well, after three days, I've lost that money as well. And But I know I've got you know two months ahead, uh, down the line. Two, two months ahead, I can do it. And so all of a sudden, uh, he's essentially eating the seed corn. You know? yeah, and yeah. so that then becomes what we would now consider a uh, internet gambling addiction. Okay. Okay. And so it has it's the harmful consequence. Or let's even be be, you know, further, you know, in our heads about it. Suppose he doesn't um, uh, take the money from the next month, but suppose he goes out and steals something, you know. uh, Okay. Or, or, you know, he stops paying um, uh, the mortgage on his uh, his house. You know, then we're seeing uh, behavior that is, uh, you know, harmful, not only to himself, but probably, you know, harmful to other people. Okay. So basically then we're saying as long as you're not harming yourself 
and others, as long as you're not behaving in a way that draws social opprobrium uh, because you're doing something bad, um, you could be entirely through your life. You could be terminally shy because this guy never goes out unless he has to. Uh -huh. But not harming yourself or others, no uh, strange behaviors, you could be quite fine living that life as long as nobody said he's crazy as a as a bed bug yeah right i mean um you know the the person might not be as carl rogers would say living a uh, um, fully uh, self-actualized life but lots of people aren't living fully self-actualized lives. Um, is there something that uh, um, psychology or psychiatry could do with this person or for this person? You know, if the person said, hey, Jim, you know, I'm really concerned about my internet gambling, you know, getting out of control. You know, can you help me with that? Now, I'm not a specialist on internet gambling, but we could probably find somebody else. But if our uh, uh, person number one, the one that you presented, is not experiencing any kind of, of uh, repercussions from his or her behavior. Or then, feeling guilt because, yeah. you know, they're, they're doing what they like to do and they're not harming themselves or others. Right. Yeah. Now, that has not always been the case. Uh, sometimes if you're different, uh, you have been uh, a entry into the uh, DSM just by being different. And I give you homosexuality as one of those differences. Okay. Uh, with the first DSM, homosexuality was considered a mental illness. With the second DSM, it also was considered a mental illness. Uh, but that classification was taken out of the third DSM in 1974, I believe. Uh, and it was no longer considered a mental illness. And so we've got things that change over okay. time. Now, the thing that we might want to uh, emphasize for our listeners is that when that happened in 74, that decision by the editors of the DSM was pretty controversial. Definitely so. No question and people, many people were saying, no, no, they're, that's, they're, they're crazy. And other people were saying, no, I'm advocating for uh, the homosexual and they are not crazy. They just... Uh, they're different. They're different. Than, than the societal norm uh, of the, the 1970s. And, you know, it was Kinsey that began to uh, shine a light on various kinds of uh, sexual um, uh, differences, uh, which are quickly labeled as sexual deviations by uh, some people. And, you know, we're going to talk about the DSMs now, because I mentioned one, two, and three, but we also have DSM-4 and DSM-5, and we see changes uh, in, all in, in all of them as they, as they I don't like, don't like to use the term evolve, but the these things are not created by 
you know, one one person or create or a, a bunch of editors that are created by committees uh, of people who are, for the most part, psychiatrists in the American Psychiatric Association, and uh, you know, they as as people, they all have opinions that they bring to the table, and we see that those opinions have changed over the course of the last hundred years. Yeah, hundred years basically, and. One of the uh, one of the things that's interesting to me, Jim, is that uh, all of the changes in uh, the various categories and classifications and and uh, treatment paradigms in the various DSMs have evolved um, to, I guess I'm going to call it uh, looser categories. Yeah, we'll look at that, Ralph, as we as we go through. Looser, I'm not sure if we want to use that term, but if you go from, say, uh, 60 categories in 1918 to 500 categories in uh, uh, 2013, yeah, we've got a lot more differentiation. How's that? Yeah, okay. Uh, the differential diagnoses have become more finely graduated. Okay, well, this is the beginning of a conversation about the DSM, which will, I think, be going on for the next few weeks, right, Ralph? I think so, yeah, because we've only touched the tip of the iceberg. Okay, so, until next week, this is Jim. And Ralph. Saying. Keep your stick on the ice. Because we're all in this together. together.